Well, I'm sure you're all familiar with the concept of autopilot, right? Autopilot is really a, a wonderful thing, right? I, if you've ever been on an airplane, uh, you know that a lot of the time that you were sitting on that airplane, the airplane was on autopilot, and that was actually a, a really good thing. And, and sometimes, uh, you, maybe you use autopilot when you're driving, right? Like the cruise control is kind of the idea there. Uh, but sometimes maybe you've experienced before personally going on autopilot. You ever had that before? Or maybe like you've been driving somewhere and you arrive at your destination and you have that moment of like, I don't remember the last 30 minutes like remotely. Like, did, was I asleep? Like what, what happened, right? We, we can sometimes go on autopilot and it's, it's what happens when we are doing something that we have habitually done again and again and again. And I guess essentially what happens is your brain just kind of just like turns off, if you will. And you just engage in something that you've done so habitually that your body just takes over. Your brain just says, look, we got this. We've done this a million times. We know how to do this. So feel free to just like think about other things, right? This is what happens when we, when we go on, on autopilot. And sometimes that's great, but I'm, I'm sure you've also experienced doing some really boneheaded things on autopilot. Right? I'm kind of notorious within my, um, within my little family of five of regularly going on autopilot when I'm driving, where I, I will just be driving and I am just going wherever I usually go when I drive. So it's like to a specific coffee, like my, my, like my, my phone will just say, I get in the car, I turn on my, my, my phone for navigation, it just says, you ready to go to the coffee shop, Nick? I'm like, I guess so, that's just where I'm supposed to go now. Just go to the coffee shop, apparently I go there all the time, right? But I will just be driving all the time and my wife will just say, Nick, uh, Nick where are you going? I was like, uh, uh, the, co- the, coffee, the coffee shop, right? That's where we're going. No, 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 we're, 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 going, so we're going to dinner, like whatever. I'm just all the time, and my kids have even caught on and just be like, Dad, are you going the right way? Are you still paying attention? Like, what's going on, Dad? Oh, my goodness. Autopilot can be great, but it can also be dangerous for us to go on autopilot when we just kind of go through the motions unaware of what we're doing. We're, we're physically doing the activity, but we're mentally checked out. And the truth is, is the more important the task is that we're doing, the more dangerous it becomes to go on autopilot, right? None of us want our surgeon to go on autopilot during the surgery, right? So he might leave a pair of scissors in there or something, right? We don't want to wake up and have the, 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 the doctor say to us like, man, I, did we do the surgery? I don't even remember. Like, we don't want that, right? Because it's such an important task. The more important the task, the more dangerous it is to go on autopilot. Now, The Corinthians, in a way, have kind of checked out and gone on autopilot during an incredibly important task, partaking of the Lord's Supper. In a way, it is like they have gone on autopilot. It's like they have completely forgotten the significance of what they're doing when they come to the Lord's table to partake of communion or the Lord's Supper. They're doing it. They're they're engaging in the physical activity. They are partaking of it, but it is as if they've completely mentally checked out and forgotten the significance of what they're doing. They're missing it. They're not caring about the implications. They're essentially forgetting why they even do it. And we too can sometimes find ourselves in a place like that. We too can sometimes just go through religious motions. Read my Bible, Go to church, take communion, sing songs, say hi to people, give, whatever it may be, gather, but be completely disengaged as we're doing it. As if just rote religious activity will somehow nourish our souls. But that is certainly not the case, right? The purpose of all of these things It's not that we would just do the activity, but it is that we would commune with Jesus and be built up in the process. The power is not found in just the rote activity. The power is found in the God who meets us there. And so this morning, I want to call us from the scriptures from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to remember the significance of the Lord's Supper. Precisely because what what this is doing is it's pointing us to Jesus' work. And because Jesus' work is so incredibly significant, we need to engage or maybe re-engage our whole being, our hearts, our minds, our understanding, our affections. We need to re-engage with the Lord's Supper this morning. 
few ways in which we do that today we'll see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The first one is this, is in remembering the meaning of the meal. Remembering the meaning of the meal. This is where Paul is going here as he continues to look at the ways in which they are abusing the Lord's Supper. Uh, Terrell preached for us last week in talking about the ways in which uh, this church was using the Lord's Supper to um, kind of fuel their they're, in, they're fighting with one another, their, their, their class system, their social status. And, and the, the Lord's Supper became a way, a, another way of just showing their eliteness and their separation between the rich and the poor and the important and the unimportant. And so he, be, he, he says here to remember the meaning of the meal. He explains it. And the reason why he explains this is because maybe they've forgotten. Or maybe they've just tuned out. So he reminds them, this is what you're doing. Look at verses 23 through 26. I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. This is not just my idea. I got this from Jesus. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my body, which is for you. He's referencing the bread that he takes and he, and he breaks it. He says, this is for you. The bread is to represent the body of Jesus. And bread is a significant theme throughout the scriptures. Bread is this idea of life, right? Some of you have maybe had to go an extended period of time without food. Maybe you've fasted or maybe you went on a juice cleanse for some silly reason. Uh, Maybe you just like didn't have access to food or whatever it may be. In those moments, you realize how good bread sounds, right? Bread can maybe just be a really basic thing to us in our culture today because we have so many different options of food. But in the ancient world, bread was an absolute staple. Bread was life. Some of you are still to this day like, bread is absolutely life. Garlic bread, garlic cheesy bread, it is life, right? Bread is life in the ancient world, right? If you, if you don't have bread, you, you, you don't have sustenance. You don't, you don't survive. In fact, what, 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 do we, what do we even see in, in the wilderness wanderings all throughout the book of Exodus? What is it that God provides his people every single day? He provides them bread. He provides them magical manna from heaven, and that bread sustains them throughout 40 years in the wilderness. Part of that was to direct them to say, man does not live on bread alone, but on the Lord, on, on the very word of the Lord. But Jesus would pick up on this theme to call himself the bread of life. Right In John chapter 6, when he feeds the 5,000, he tells them, I am the bread of life. That's what Jesus says. I am the very source of sustenance. I am the bread from heaven that God provided Israel in the wilderness. Yes, look at what he says here, John 6, uh, go back one. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven. So he's referencing the wilderness wanderings of Israel. It wasn't Moses that gave you bread. It was my father. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God, here's the true bread from heaven. It's this, it is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world talking about himself. They say, sir, give us this bread always. We want that bread. That sounds like the best loaf of bread I've ever heard of, right? That's like homemade sourdough, fresh out. That's, that's the, give us that bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Yeah, that bread sounds good, and, and that bread is me. I am the bread of life. Those that come to me and feast on me will never go hungry. Obviously, Jesus is hitting on something deep and profound, much more than just simply physical hunger, but the hunger of our souls will find satisfaction in the bread of life. He continues later on, a few verses later in that, in that very chapter, to say this, I am the living bread that came from heaven. So much like God sent manna from heaven to Israel in the wilderness, I am the true bread that God has sent from heaven down to the earth. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. In case we're missing what Jesus is talking about, he just lays it out for us. I am the bread of life. I am the bread from heaven. Those that eat of me will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world, you want to know what it is? It's, it's my flesh. It's my body broken for you. 
It will provide you sustenance and life and strength, not just for every day, but so much so that you will live forever. Have eternal life with me, those who will come to me and feast upon this bread. And so for Jesus to say that he's the bread of life is to say this, that there is no hope for life or rescue or sustenance apart from me. You can go searching for all different kinds of bread, all different sources, but you'll never find what you need unless you come to me. Unless you find your life in my body broken for you on the cross. So he says, he takes bread, he says, this is my body, and that is what the bread is for us. Jesus takes it and he says, this is my body for you. It was broken for you, partake of it. And then he looks, turns to the cup. He says, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus takes a cup of wine and offers it to his disciples in communion. On the night he was betrayed, he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. It is my blood for you. And if we know our Bibles, we will sense, we will pick up several themes that Jesus is hitting on simply by saying, this is the new, the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Our ears today, if we hear that we don't know our Bibles, we don't know our Old Testament, we miss almost everything he's saying. Because Jesus is pulling in like three or four different themes here to say all of it is culminating in this cup. Let's look at a few of them briefly together. First one is this, is that throughout the Old Testament, the cup is referred to as the wrath of God. That's the, that's the picture here. Look at a few verses here. Psalm 75 and Isaiah 51. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup. And what's in it? Foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all of the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. In the hand of the Lord is a cup filled with wine, and he will make the nations that rebel against him drink it. Or Isaiah 51, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk down to the dregs the bowl, the cup of of staggering. Remember when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and what does he pray? He says, Father, remove this what? Remove this cup from me. And you're like, is Jesus just carrying around a hydro flask with him in the garden of Gethsemane? Like, what, what is he talking about? This is what he's talking about. The cup of God's wrath. That's the picture. That's the metaphor God's given. A cup of foaming hot wine that is reserved for the enemies of God's people to drink down to the very last drop, and it is his burning hot fury and wrath towards sin. So, so that's caught up in this, in this metaphor. When Jesus says, here's the cup, which in some ways is like, wait a minute, I don't want that cup. That sounds like a bad cup to me. But who drinks the cup first in our place? It is Jesus who drinks the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs so that when we look inside the cup of God's wrath for God's people, it's, it's empty, it's dry. There, there's nothing left for us. There is no more wrath to be poured out on God's very own. No matter how much we think he's reserving just a little bit to give to us because we keep struggling and keep sinning, no, Jesus drank the cup on our behalf. He now offers us a new cup. Right? He says it's the cup of the new covenant. And in the new covenant, there's a promise of there being wine. Not the wine that's in the cup of God's wrath, but a new kind of wine. Look at where, where this goes. Several verses up on the screen here. You can go to the next one. In Amos chapter 9, these are all promises from different Old Testament prophets about the coming of Christ and the new relationship that God is going to have with those who will believe. So this is describing our relationship now with the Lord Jesus. Amos chapter nine, and even the, the days that are to come. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of the grapes, him who sows the seed, and the mountains shall drip 
sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with it. One day, there will be a new covenant relationship between God and his people. And one of the markers, the hills will be flowing with wine, the best wine. Jeremiah 31, they shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion where the Lord dwells and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil. Wine will be there as we rejoice. Joel 3, and in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine. Or Isaiah 25, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. The Bible describes this new covenant picture, this picture of, of God's people who are in new relationship with him because of the work of Christ, that one of the things that will happen as we partake in that relationship with the Lord is we will feast with him. There will be a day when God brings the full culmination of his kingdom and there will be new wine, the best wine, an abundance of wine, a feast. Wine is this picture of abundance and life and new covenant relationship with God. I think it's part of what Jesus is doing when he performs his very first miracle in John chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana. Right? What does he do? He turns water into wine. And what do they say about the wine? They say it's the best wine. And what's another marker of the wine? That there's an abundance of it. There's far more than they need. That's a marker of God's kingdom coming. The best wine and an abundance of wine. We're promised the new covenant again in Jeremiah chapter 31. Look at this with me, Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So I'm gonna make a new covenant. It's not like that one because Israel broke it. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of of Israel, which we get to partake in as the true Israel of God. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. For everyone who believes, after those days, declares the Lord. Here's the covenant. Here's the marker. Go to the next one. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. This is the covenant that we get to enter in when you become a follower of Jesus and you put your faith and your trust in him and you come to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I recognize that it's in you and you alone that life is found that you died on the cross for my sin, your body was broken for me, your blood was poured out for me, that when you come to him and believe and you follow in him, you get to partake in this new covenant relationship where God promises and he makes all the promises. He says, I will be your God, you will be my people, I will remember your sins no more. Another way the Bible describes it is, I will set your sins behind my back. Not because your sin doesn't matter, but because I'll punish my son Jesus instead of you and I'll never treat you like your sins deserve again. That's good news. That's really good news. That's what we walk in and live in today as followers of Jesus. There's another theme though with wine, just very simply that a lot of us probably can really understand even without the Bible today, that wine is gladness. Wine represents gladness all throughout the scriptures. The Bible's not afraid of this. Look at this. Look at these few verses here especially in the Psalms, that God made wine to gladden the heart of man. Or Psalm 4, that you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Simply saying, it's a, it's a natural observance of life that when you have an abundance of food and wine, you're happy. Or Deuteronomy 14, spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink or whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. All throughout the scriptures, wine is to represent this simple idea of joy and gladness. 
Now, that, that, that's not just saying, now in, indulge with whatever you want and just drink as much wine as it takes to get you happy. No, because we know that all throughout the New Testament it also tells us not to get drunk with wine, right? But simply, it, the wine, it, it's a gift from the Lord to gladden our hearts, to enjoy, to partake of. And so when Jesus comes and he brings this cup, there's a whole lot going on. A whole lot is being represented in this cup of wine. To say, when you come to drink of this, you know first and foremost, I've drunk the cup of God's wrath, so there's none left for you. I now offer you a new cup of wine, and it's the best wine. It's actually representative of my blood poured out for you, and this wine will truly bring you joy. It will truly gladden your hearts, because it is the wine that will flow in abundance for all who believe. Some of us maybe have never thought about that before. But this is what Jesus is saying when he says, my body and bread and my blood in the cup for you. As often as you eat it and drink it, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so as we partake of these things, we not only remember Christ, but we proclaim him. That in a few moments when we come to the table to partake of the Lord's Supper together, we are proclaiming the unique power and preciousness of the body and blood of Christ. We are, we're, we're, we're shouting it. We, we're making a declaration together as we partake of it. Even though, for the most part, you know, many of us won't be proclaiming things out loud, but by partaking of it, the Bible says you are proclaiming the death of Christ and saying, it is effective for my salvation. It has paid the price for my sins. I am a new creation. I am forgiven. I'm wiped clean. And when I take this, it is as if we collectively as a body proclaim that to one another and to the world to say that Christ is sufficient for salvation. All the stain of sin is atoned for. See, as we partake of the cup... We receive as uh, Hebrews chapter 10, I'll put the next uh, verses up. In Hebrews chapter 10, we, we see this, that, uh, that as we partake of the cup, we receive not the blood of bulls and goats, which is not able to take away sins. That's not the blood that we receive in the cup. It's not the blood of animals that have been sacrificed because those don't take away our sins. No, what do we receive? We receive the precious blood of Christ, which is what we're ransomed by. That's what we, re we receive when we take the cup. Jesus' blood not only purifies the flesh, but it cleanses our conscience, as we, see, as we see in Hebrews 9. It cleanses the stain that sin has left on our consciences, so we don't have to be racked with guilt and shame and fear all of the time. And it not only covers sin for just a period of time, but it forgives sin forever, as we see in Ephesians chapter 1 the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. His blood pleads for our mercy. And when we partake of this blood, we are also proclaiming that Jesus secured for us an eternal inheritance. Look at the next couple of verses here. The blood, as we take it, here's what we're proclaiming. Got the next one? Here we go. Here's what Jesus did. He secured for us an eternal redemption. Not a temporary one, but an eternal redemption. Redemption, and that's what we're saying when we partake of the cup. And he, this, this blood represents not just a temporary promise of God, an eternal covenant, an eternal promise. The Bible says when we partake of this seemingly ordinary thing, we are proclaiming unbelievable realities together as a church. It's worship. Right? Jesus, it says that Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he thanked the Lord. It's worship, it's thankfulness. And so as we partake of this meal together, we remember Christ, we proclaim Christ, but then as even as we saw last chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we participate with Christ. There's even something mysterious going on here that we somehow participate in the body of Christ and participate in the blood of Christ as we take this. And so even though it seems really ordinary, you got a little cup, which is smaller than any cup you've ever held in your life. These tiny little cups. And this 
seemingly just very normal piece of bread. But in these ordinary things, there is an ex- extraordinary thing happening. In, uh, in 2007, there was this, uh, this, this story that, that kind of got some traction online, and uh, it was this musician. His name was Joshua Bell. He was one of the world's greatest classical musicians at the time, and uh, he was a, a very excellent violin player. And in 2007, he decided to take his violin down to the metro, a metro station inside of Washington, D.C., and he goes to the metro station at 7.51 a.m. on a Friday morning. Just a whatever, right? 7.51. He opens his violin case, sets it up in front of him, and just starts playing. For all the metro riders and commuters to hear and listen to as they're going to and from the workplace. And he played for 45 minutes. Over the course of those next 45 minutes, one of the best classical musicians in all of the world is playing, and no one knows who he is. He seems very ordinary. And 1,100 people came through that metro station in those 45 minutes. Seven people stopped to listen. Seven. Seven people had an ear to recognize, oh, this is, this is at least worth stopping and listening for a moment. But 99% of them just saw something very ordinary and thought, whatever, there's just another musician trying to make a couple extra bucks. I'd wish they'd just be quiet. I'm on my way to work. But seven of them saw in something very ordinary something, something more. When we come to this table, it, it seems very ordinary. But there's an extraordinary reality taking place. We are remembering Christ. We are proclaiming him. We are participating in the body and blood of Jesus in a profound way, in an extraordinary way, in a supernatural way. They couldn't look more ordinary, but they couldn't be more filled with glory. And so when we come to the table, we are to engage our hearts and our minds in remembering these realities when we do this, and not to just go on autopilot and say, all right, just, I'm a little hungry, so I guess this will barely help me until I get to lunch. No. Something incredible is happening when we do this together as the body of Christ. So we are to remember the meaning of the meal. We're also to understand the preparation that is to go into the meal. The preparation that we are to engage in for the meal. This is where he goes next in verse 27. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So Paul, after explaining the meaning of the meal, says this. Now, if any of you come to partake of it, and what he says, an unworthy manner, because of the meaning of the meal, you will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Jesus. Now, I don't even know if we fully understand what that means, But to be guilty concerning the body and blood of Jesus is as bad as it gets. Right? Unbelievers are guilty concerning the body and blood of Jesus. The nations that oppose God all throughout the Old Testament that are going to receive the cup of God's wrath are guilty concerning the body and blood of Jesus. It's not a place you want to be. So he seems to be saying that there is some kind of preparation that needs to take place in us as we come to this meal because of how significant it is. A couple different kinds of preparation, I think. First and foremost, I I do believe there is a sense of a vertical preparation we need to engage in with the Lord. I don't think it's Paul's primary point though here, which we'll get to in just a minute. But we do need to engage in some kind of vertical preparation when we come to the Lord's table and make sure we are not approaching it in an unworthy manner. A few ways in which that might look. One one is, if we are walking in open, blatant, unrepentant sin, and yet we're going to come to the table of the Lord and proclaim all those realities I just talked about. Jesus died for my sins. He loves me. He's secured for me eternal redemption. He's drained the cup of God's wrath for me. I get to be a part of the new covenant of God, the new family of God. I'm going to be with him in eternity forever and eternal redemption at this table with this great feast and all this wine and all these sort of things because simply the blood of Jesus paid the price for my sins, but then as we come to the table, we're just living a life of open sin? Does it make any sense? Literally making a mockery 
of the body and blood of Jesus when we do that. When we just simply come to the table with no regard for the sin in our own life, we make a mockery of the cross of Christ. And so there is this sense in which when we come to the table, we are observing our own life to recognize, man, am I just walking in sin with no care? Now, now the idea here is not you can only come to the table if there's no sin in your life. That, that's, not, that's not what it's saying. This table is for sinners. But it's for sinners who trust in Christ. Okay? It's, it's for struggling sinners who are struggling with sin, but trust in Christ. It's for weak and weary and wounded sinners, but sinners who trust in Christ. So the idea here is not like you can only come to the table if you've been really good this week. No, no, no. But there are some who are just living however they want. And every other moment of their weeks are not following Christ, but somehow think I can come to this table and just get a little bit, a little bit of the magic stuff. Let me just get a little bit of the, the grace of Jesus and kind of get my cleansing for the week and be on my way. No. No. That's not what this is. Which is why every time we come to take communion, we... I, I plead with those that are among us here that are not followers of Jesus, please do not partake of this. It, it, it isn't for you while you're not a follower of Jesus. And, and I don't want this for the unbeliever in our midst. I do not want them to be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. I don't want that for them. Instead, I want the unbeliever to come and believe in Jesus and then partake. It is for Christians who trust in Christ. It's not some magical meal that gives you a pardon for the week. No. It's proclaiming that Christ has paid the price for our sins and we trust in him. So how do we prepare vertically? I think there is, it is, it is appropriate for us to engage in this self-reflection to say, search me, O God, find any offensive way in me. And if there's there's any offensive way in me, would you lead me in the way everlasting? Would you lead me to repentance, to, to recognize those sins and say, I want nothing to do with those, Lord Jesus. As I come to the table, I'm reminded of my own sin and I hate it and I don't want it in my life. I come to you, Jesus, and I trust in you again and again. But I think Paul's primary point in this context is not the vertical preparation for communion, but the horizontal preparation for communion. He's talking all about the communal relationship we have with each other as we partake of this table together. This section that we're in this morning is just a continuation of, of where Terrell had us last week. We're just talking all about the unity we get to have at the table. He's not all of a sudden forsaking that and just saying, it's just you and Jesus at this table. No, no, no. As we've said a few times in the last couple weeks, the Lord's table is not a sweetheart table. It's not a me and Jesus timetable. It's a farm table with God's church and his people. It's a communal meal. It's a family meal. We sit at the table, not by ourselves with Jesus, but with each other and Jesus. So there is a way in which we need to prepare ourselves horizontally in our relationships before we come to this table. The Corinthian problem is communion became a time to exercise their social status which is why he's employing them to remember the meaning of the meal, right? They were using the cross of Christ to trample others and build up their own name and their status. They were flaunting their wealth and their pride and their greed and their drunkenness and just their overall selfishness when they would come to this table. He's saying, don't come to partake in an unworthy manner. Instead, verse 28, let a person examine himself. In verse 29, he says, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And when Paul says the body here, I do think he's talking about the, the church, the body of Christ. I don't think he's specifically mentioning the body and blood of Jesus in the bread because he's been so intentional every time he said that to mention the body and blood of Jesus. But here he doesn't do that. And if he was trying to, to talk about the body and blood of Jesus, I, I think he probably would have said, uh, anyone who eats eats and drinks without discerning the body and the blood, eats and drinks judgment. But he doesn't say that. I think he's talking about the body of Christ, the church. Anyone who comes to eat this table, not having discerned anything about the body, 
is eating and drinking judgment on himself. So what are some ways in which we can come to the table in an unworthy manner in our horizontal relationships? Maybe we're in discord with others. Maybe there's been things that have just happened among us in our relationships. There's been hurt feelings. There's been sin against one another. And there's just been some kind of discord in our relationship with somebody else in this local church. He's saying, don't come to this table without discerning what's going on amongst the body and figuring it out. It's very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. Look what Jesus said in, in, in Matthew chapter 5. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. See, we tend to think, well, yeah, this stuff's going on, but like, this is just me and Jesus' time. I come to church, I worship him, he speaks just to me, I engage with him, me and him, I take communion, it's me and him. I listen to sermons, just me and him. But the New Testament seems to hit on this reality that when we come to worship Christ, we don't just come as individuals, we come corporately. And if as you come to worship Christ as an individual, and you remember there's discord in the body, don't come here with your worship. First, just go be reconciled. The Bible seems to put a much higher emphasis on our unity than we tend to. We tend to think, well, I'll work that out later. What matters right now is that I worship the Lord, me and him. And Jesus seems to be saying, well, but you're disobeying me here. And then just like trying to come and worship me here. Like, I've clearly told you to go and be reconciled. So go do that and then come worship. Don't come to me worshiping with this whole bunch of this unrepentant sin going on that you know you're not supposed to be walking in. He lays it out really simply and yet we like really muddy the waters and just make it like, well, I don't think he really means that. Maybe we have bitterness or anger or pride towards others in our body. So if we're going to prepare for the meal, let us engage in unity with one another, in harmony, in forgiveness, in love towards each other. It's like he's saying to this church and to us, church, don't you realize that in a few moments you will take the bread and the cup, which symbolize that all of us are one. Regardless of our status or our sins or our race or our gender or our jobs, we all come, are about to come to the table and at this table, all of us are, are level. The, the, at the foot of the cross, the ground is, is even ground. It's level ground. None of us stands elevated over others. We are all equal before Christ in the fact that we are condemned for our sins apart from him and yet we all stand as redeemed children of God. Don't you realize you're about to partake of this table together in that place? How can you do that in discord with one another? Maybe another way in which we can do this is we can come to the table with just an absolutely committed attitude of individualism. Of to just say to ourselves, uh, this is really, like, okay, I, maybe I care about the body, but, like, what really matters is just me and my experience. We're in a very individualistic culture and society where we can very easily come to worship Christ with this very committed attitude of individualism. It's part of why we so highly emphasize Membership. Because the concept and the idea of becoming a member at a local church is this idea of, I want to covenant. I want to commit myself here. I want to come here and say, by becoming a member, I don't just care about me and my experience at church and me getting what I need from church. I care about the body. I care about these people here so much so that I am willing to promise myself to them to say, I will care for you. I will look out for you. I will help disciple you. I will bear your burdens. And also, I need you to do that for me. 
The, the very concept of membership is this idea of coming to say, it's not just about me. I want to be a, a contributing covenant part of this body. I think we have to do some thinking on that, some considering on that. Because if we just continue to come to worship the Lord with the refusal to covenant to his people, we're essentially saying, this is pretty much just about me getting what I want. And I'd like to make it quite easy to step out if that's no longer the case. None of us would receive an invitation to a friend's wedding and respond to the invitation by saying, you know, I'm just coming for the, uh, I'll, I'll be there, but, but I'll actually just be there for the meal. And then uh, I'm actually going to leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your, your friend would look at you and say, what do you mean you're just coming for the meal? Yeah, you know what? I, I'm not going to come to the wedding. Uh, cool, very cool that you're getting married. So excited for you. Love that. Uh, but I'm just not going to be there for that. Um, I also just going to let you know I'm not going to be bringing a present. Um, but I'm going to be there for the meal. Uh, I'd like the chicken, please. Uh, I'll, I'll take the chicken. Uh, but then right after that, I'm just going to I'm gonna have to dip. I'm going to have to go. Um, hope it's a wonderful life that you have. Uh, like, no, like that would be so awkward, right? No one, like it's such an absurd example. No one comes to the wedding just to get the food. Just be like, I'm in this for me, just getting what I need. But anything having to do with anything else, I'm out. No, no one would do that because the essence of a wedding, right? What is the essence of a wedding? It is the, the celebration of these people. It is the support. You're saying, I'm supporting this covenant, this relationship. I'm celebrating with them. I'm championing them. And I'm coming alongside them to say, I'm with you in this. I'm going to celebrate with you. I'm going to get you a gift. I'm going to dress nice. I'm going to take pictures. It's going to be great. We're going to be in this together. No one goes to the wedding to just say, this is just about me getting what I want. And so we need to discern, are we coming to worship Christ in the local church saying, I'm just coming for the meal without discerning the body. Did Pastor John Piper say it this way, you can love coming to church and at the same time despise the church. The Lord's Supper is not a mere religious ritual. The Lord's Supper is a call to love each other. It's to love each other. That we would come to this table having prepared to say, we are in this together. We share a future together. We share a destiny together. We are in this together. We will bear each other's burdens together. And so for some of us, maybe we need to repent of the sin of individualism. I'm just saying, this is just about me and recognize I need to make a movement horizontally towards others in this place. See, the beauty is, is that Christ has made us worthy to receive this meal. He has done all of the preparation on our behalf. He paid the price for our sins. He has declared you as worthy if you're a follower of Jesus. And that's good news because it means you don't have to get yourself worthy for the, for the table. You just simply have to walk in that, and what he's already done for you. He's already made you worthy. So when we come to this table, we are essentially doing some horizontal preparation to say, who here is lonely and needs a friend? Who among us is hurting and needs to be comforted? Who among us is weary and needs support? Who among us is terrified of being abandoned and needs someone to come alongside them and say, I commit to you? I'm in this with you. Who's poor and needs generosity? Who's rejoicing and needs somebody to rejoice with? Who is an outcast and needs to be welcomed? Who is believing lies and needs to be exhorted to believe the truth? Paul's saying, let's do some preparation. And he says, the result of not doing the preparation is to come to the table in an unworthy manner and reject the gospel while ritually embracing it. And what he says here is that's happening in the Corinthian church. <laughs> and did you hear what he said? He said, that is why 
Many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Paul is saying that the Lord's actually disciplining you because of the way in which you're coming to the table in an unworthy manner. Here's what we need to hear from this. This is not saying that every time Christians get sick, ill, or die, it's God uh, punishing you for your sins. That is not what that is saying. What it is saying is this, is that Paul is prophetically speaking to this church to say, in this instance, the reason why this is happening is the Lord is disciplining you. We aren't to take that as a universal principle to say every time I'm sick or I'm ill or somebody among me dies, it's because God hated them and was smiting them. No, no, no. But what Paul is saying is that you are continually coming to this table, Corinthian church, and mocking the cross of Christ. Therefore, in this case, the reason why some of you are sick and ill and have died is because the Lord is disciplining you so that you might not fall into condemnation, right? Which is where he goes next, that we may not be condemned along with the world. Which is why he says, if we had judged ourselves truly, then this would not be happening. If we had been discerning the body and the sin among us and dealing with it and repenting of it and remembering the meal together in the correct way, in the right way, worshiping Christ, then maybe these things wouldn't be happening. All of this is just coming to say what we're doing here is significant. And how you prepare for the meal matters. I, I liked to procrastinate a lot of my preparation when I was a student in high school and college. Right? I would just put it off, put it off, put it off, put it off. But eventually I would study. It would usually be the day before, the night before. I would cram it all in and I would study. But I remember having friends who would literally would just not study. Right? They would join me in the procrastination, but the procrastination never like, met the, the, the place of like, okay, well, now we have to study right? because we have a test tomorrow. It would just be like, nah, whatever, I'm not going to study. And I remember always looking at those people. I'm like, do you not think this matters? Like, what, what do you mean you just didn't study? Like, I understand, like, not studying for, like, a long time, and then, but then cramming at the end, but you just literally chose to not study? Like, do you just not think this matters? The way that we prepare for something says what we think about it. He's saying prepare for the meal because of how much it matters. And lastly is this. He tells us how to partake of the meal. So he's talked about how to, remembering the meaning of the meal, how to prepare for the meal, and lastly, partake of the meal. He says in verse 33, when you come together, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. When you come together, meaning this is something implied about taking communion together. It is for the gathered body of Christ. That is the, the primary means by which we are to take communion together is with the gathered church, right? We don't just do it at home like every morning at like 9 a.m. Take your communion. No, no, no. This is for when we gather. It's, it's representing the body of Christ being, being one. It's a reference to weekly gatherings. It's why weekly gatherings are, are a priority for us. It's about our unity with Christ and with each other. So we are to prioritize gathering. He's saying, he's just assuming that you're meeting together, which we can't really assume anymore in our, in our day and age. In fact, there, there are times in, in the book of Hebrews, he exhorts them to not neglect gathering. But he, he, he's assuming like, like yes, let, let's continue to prioritize gathering together and not neglect that, right? In the footnotes, you'll see that uh, it says there, unless you have a birthday party to celebrate or uh, a soccer game for the kids or a late night on Saturday or you need to make some extra money and, and work a few more extra no, 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 he doesn't say that. No, he, he's assuming that we're prioritizing the gathering as the body of Christ. What we do here, like, we need it. It's not just like some convenience that, like, yeah, if there's room on the calendar, we'll do it, I guess. No, when we remember the meaning of what we're doing when we gather, we prioritize it. Right? Like, that's, that's actually good for us to maybe even make sacrifices with the rest of our schedule to prioritize being able to come together. The church is so vital. The gathered church is so vital to our life, to our growth in Christ. You, so obvious, but do you recognize the entire, every New Testament letter is written either to churches about how to do church life together 
or it's written to leaders of churches on how to lead churches and doing church life together. Like, church isn't like part of your life. If you're a Christian, you are the church. You are, you, you, like, that is you. It's describing you and your relationship with those in your local body of Christ. Like, your life and your destiny and your being and your, your, your like, God's future, all of it's bound up in being a part of this people. Like, this isn't just some, like, side dish. This is what we get to be a part of. And it's actually so good for us when we prioritize that. So he's saying, when you come together to eat, wait. Wait for one another. It could also be translated, receive one another. It's this idea of hospitality, of love. When you gather, be mindful of the other. Wait for them. Now, this does not mean like, wait for those that are like 30 minutes late to church before you start, right? No, no, no. It's, but this idea, like when we come to the table, like open arms, recognize one another. That at this table, we are all totally different. We're all different colors, different classes, different experiences, different sins, different struggles, different fears, different anxieties, different successes, different failures, all these kinds of things. And yet when we come to this table, we are one. We are equal. Every other identity marker falls to the side to say my primary identity in this place among these people is a brother and sister in Christ who's been redeemed. It doesn't mean those things aren't important. They're super important. In fact, they, they can even contribute to the way in which we experience unity together. But at this table, wait for one another. Remember each other. Receive each other. Care for each other. Bear one another's burdens. The church is to be that kind of place. And so Paul is telling us, because the work of Jesus is so significant, let's engage our whole selves when we come to the table to worship him. Let's not go on autopilot, but let's engage our minds. I remember, uh, I, I can remember back specific moments in, in my life as I, as I look back, uh, like specific days. My wedding day was one. My, my last day of high school was one. Just certain days where it was like, I don't want to miss this day. I, I want to like engage my mind. Remember when my children were born? Like all this, I was like, I want to remember this day. You ever had that experience before of like, you're, you know you're experiencing something so significant and you know your tendency to just kind of like go on autopilot and just go through the day and miss things. But there are certain days that we experience where we're like, today, man, I'm not missing a thing. Maybe I'm bringing my camera. Maybe I'm gonna like, just, I'm, I'm just gonna do everything I can to like engage and remember every little moment of this day. That's the kind of attention. That's the kind of engagement that Paul's calling us to when we come to the table to worship Christ, to say, engage here. Remember the meaning of this thing. Consider, prepare for this. Partake of it. Because it's so, so significant. Every time we gather, we have the privilege of doing just that. Let's pray together.